Okay. <laughs> I don't even have to ask you guys, how's it going? Yeah. Well, you guys are looking extra beautiful tonight. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, what's cooking, good looking? And then get their number. Just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be creepy. <laughs> All right, so my name is Whitney Porter, and I am on staff at Red Rocks. Um, I plan and coordinate all the events here, and I love creating environments so that you guys can feel comfortable inviting new people to. I love seeing new people come for the very first time and experience life and accept Jesus. But more, more than that, I just love you guys. I love being here, yeah. And so, because I love you guys, um, I want to warn you that in the next 30 minutes or so, you might get blinded because the light might flash off this rock. Yeah, yeah. I'm engaged. Conrad, can you stand up really quickly? Love you. Awesome. He liked it, so he put a ring on it. <laughs> All right, well, we are currently in this series titled, Welcome to the Party. And this series is all about God's grace. And all throughout scripture, God talks about how his grace is likened to a party. And so two weeks ago, Jess kind of talked through uh, Luke 15 and how God will go through great lengths to invite you to his party, to invite you in and experience God's grace. And then last week, Doug kind of talked behind the how. How do we get grace? How do we experience favor from a God that is perfect and holy? And it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, dying on a cross and then being resurrected. And tonight, I have come expectant. Have you come expectant? Yep. I've been praying big prayers in the hopes that you guys all can leave these doors understanding how powerful God's grace is. And my takeaway for tonight isn't so much what is grace, but what does grace do for your life? So I don't have a fancy title, but I do want you to answer this question by the end of the night, and it's this. <clears throat> do you believe that God's grace can transform your life daily. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for 15 years or tonight, do you believe that God's grace can transform your life daily? So before we get any uh, further, can we go ahead and ask God to be here? Will you pray with me? Awesome. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for tonight. I lay myself down in front of my family and my friends and my peers so that you are the only person in this room that is glorified tonight. Jesus, I pray that it's not so much what's being taught, it's what's being caught. And so I pray that every single person in here will catch a revelation of just how powerful your grace is and what it wants to do in their life. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Has anybody in here have been given a, just a horrible gift? Just terrible. You're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. One person? Are you serious? Well, it used to be, and back in the day, we used to have these like awesome gifts. Like in the 90s, you know, like Easy Bake Ovens. Yeah. Or like Beanie Babies, Hacky Sacks, whatever. 90s kids represent. 
<laughs> and now gift giving has kind of turned practical. Like they're all practical gifts, like socks. And no one wants to be given socks, okay? Okay, I see you. And there's always this moment of truth, especially when you get a gift of socks. And I always love looking for it. So whether it's like a Christmas party or a birthday party, someone will be given this gift and they open it and then they're like, oh, oh, thank you so much. And in your mind, you're like frantically trying to find anything to say that you like about it. Like you open it and you're like, it's, oh, it's so soft. Like, what do I say? It's so practical. I'll wear these socks every single day. And if you're in here, I know you're in here, over here, and you're like, no, I love socks. I love giving socks. I love the gift of socks. But I hate to break this to you, but you are the friend that makes everyone publicly lie to your face. <laughs> Sam Schalberg, I know you're in here. <laughs> or my favorite, my favorite is this, is homemade gifts. And you always have the friend that makes you open their homemade gift in front of them. And that this gift is Pinterest-worthy, okay? And so you open this gift, and it's like a hand-knit sweater, sweater of, like, Taylor Swift's face, like, holding, like, ten cats. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh, when am I ever going to wear this? But thanks. And sometimes, if we're honest, I feel like this is how we view God's grace. The Ephesians 2.8 talks about how God's grace is a gift, and sometimes we can metaphorically open the gift of grace, and we're kind of like, oh, like, thanks, God. This is so awesome. I don't really know, like, how to use it, but thanks. And you throw things out, like, well, God's grace covers you. Or God's grace is sufficient for all of your needs. But do we actually know what we're saying in this moment? And so I uh, started doing a word study of this mysterious word of grace. And I found that in both the New and Old Testament, there's this, word, this Greek word that grace is derived from, and it's called charis. And this word means uh, favor or kindness. And then if you fast forward down the historical line, Latin picked up this word and made it charis. And that means valued or beloved. And then as we know, English derived all, a lot of our words from Latin, and we made this word charity. And charity in the most basic definitions means unmerited favor or voluntary giving. And so my natural inclination in understanding grace is that grace is this unmerited favor that seeks to place value and kindness on humanity so that you can reach your fullest potential in life. And there's this man by the name of Chris Horst, and he's actually studied this idea of charity and what makes one successful. And he's authored books about this topic. And so we start um, emailing back and forth about how God's grace is likened to a charity. And he said this, our creator, go ahead and put that up, our creator has endowed all people with talents, abilities, and dreams, creating us all in his image a successful charity underscores God's perfect design. It starts by recognizing that nobody has come from nothing. 
that everybody, even those with very little in their pockets or clothes in their drawers, has something to offer us and to their communities. You have something to offer because of God's grace. That God's grace is like a charity in the sense that the end goal is always to propel you forwards. And Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1.6 says this, In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And so Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's saying, really, God is less concerned about you understanding all the nuances and intricacies of his grace, and he's more interested in you um, and what the power of God's grace does for your life. Let me say that again. God is less interested in you understanding all the nuances and intricacies of his grace. And he is more concerned about what the power of God's grace does for your life. So Paul starts to say that by grace we've been adopted as sons and daughters. That our sins have been forever forgiven. And that he's uncovered the mystery of his will. By this glorious grace that the plan for your life is now effective immediately. And I remember I was talking to now a dear friend, her name is Candace, and she was a part of a youth program that helped at-risk teenagers develop relationships in the hopes that they'll break generational poverty. And I asked her, can you share a little bit more of your story? And I'll never forget what she said. She said that when I first started coming around, I didn't understand why people would show so much kindness towards me? What would anyone want to do with me? Why were people so giving of their time and generous of their resources? They must have a hidden agenda. But now she's graduated high school, she's graduated college, and she's actually going back to school to get her master's degree, all because a few families wanted to come around her and extend her an olive branch of grace. And this is what God's grace does for you. And sometimes it's not going to make a whole bunch of sense. In fact, in Romans 9, it says that God's grace is scandalous. That people aren't going to fully understand it. You have something to offer because of God's grace. So what is it? What is the end game of God's grace? What does grace do for you? And I believe it's three things of many. I know I'm a girl. I could talk all night. But three things we'll go over tonight. So number one, grace compels you to go forward. Number two, grace fuels your purpose. And number three, grace launches you into a lifelong pursuit of truth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20. And I want to give you a little bit of context before we get into the content. And so uh, Paul right now is on the run for his life from disgruntled Jews that want to kill him. And so he's going from city to city, yes, to hide, but also planting churches everywhere he goes so that people can, under, can learn about the, the gospel, can learn about Jesus. And right before Acts chapter 20, 
the city of Ephesus are in severe riots. And the, the silversmiths in that, in that town actually were losing money because they're making all the ancient temple gods. And they realize that there's such a, like, a, an uh, exodus of people converting to Christianity. They're losing money. So they're getting angry. And they start rioting out against Christians. So Paul hears of this. And he's like, okay, I'm going to gather all of the church leaders and come down to this little town of Miletus. It's about 50 miles south of Ephesus for a little weekend getaway, a church retreat. That was fun. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so he wants to start pouring out encouragement over these leaders. And he says things like this. He says, hey, keep serving the Lord humbly at all costs. And he says things like preach the gospel explicitly and unashamedly. Don't let them shut you up. And then we'll pick up in verse 22. But there is an urgency before me now. I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. I'm completely in the dark about what will happen when I get there. I do know that it won't be any picnic, for the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times and imprisonment ahead. But that matters little. What matters most to me is to finish what God started, the job Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant grace of God. And so Paul's telling these leaders, it doesn't matter what happens to these bones or this skin. All that matters to me is that I feel compelled to go and tell people about God's extravagant and incredible grace. And I can't help but imagine what Paul is thinking in this moment. Because when he had first experienced God's grace, he was on a similar journey to Jerusalem. Except this time, he wasn't encouraging them, he was murdering them. He was breathing out threats against them. And by God's grace, he's on this journey. God knocks him off of his horse, blinds him for three days, and then audibly speaks to him and said, enough's enough. You're done murdering Christians, and you're on my team now. But grace doesn't just stop there. God's favor goes on him, and he actually restores Paul's vision. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. And then he brings around a whole community of believers, his friends, to protect him. And then he opened up God-sized doors to start an international church. This is God's grace. And I can see Paul a few years older now. He's telling these leaders that God's grace has raided my life in such a way that I feel compelled to go back and share. Have you had moments like this? Maybe when you first got saved, or maybe it was when God abundantly provided for you in a time of need, or maybe, or maybe he gave you supernatural strength when you, when you feel like your life was falling apart, and all your response to do is to just breathe out God's grace over your sphere of influence. God has compelled you to go forward. And Paul also makes this conclusion Yes, it compels you to go forward, but it also sustains you. That grace fuels your calling. And Paul starts to um, tell all these leaders that he understands that hard times are up ahead. And I think that's kind of an understatement when you actually study Paul's life. Because he says in uh, 2 Corinthians, he says he's gone through this. 
prison frequently, severely flogged, been exposed to death multiple times, pelted with stones, shipwrecked three times, so unfortunate, spent the night in an open sea, went without food and, and clothing often, he went into hiding, and on top of all these things, he dealt with the daily pressures of an international church. So needless to say, Paul has been through it all. He's, he's literally been through hell on earth. And so what, why, what would compel him to keep going forward? Why on earth, how could he go through all of these things, all for the sake of fulfilling his calling? And I believe the answer is so simple. The grace was his daily fuel. And Paul built the case that, you know what, you're going to go through this life and you're going you're to have scars and cuts and wounds and brokenness and broken hearts. But because of God's grace, you can keep going forward. That you can look yourself in the mirror, wake up and look yourself in the mirror every single morning and walk worthy of your calling. Why? Because God's glorious grace, it revives you, it redeems you, it restores you. It writes your future into existence daily. So what is your calling? What are your dreams? What are your visions? What are these God-sized doors that only he can open? And I'm reading this book by Brian Houston called Live, Love, Lead. And he says this about grace fueling your calling. The Bible has so much to say about living in grace, knowing, walking, and living in the undeserved favor of a kind and merciful God. The Bible is full of characters who fell out of their depth at times, inadequate for the task placed in front of them. Men and women overwhelmed by the purpose set before them and the call God placed upon their lives. People like Mephibosheth, it's a really long name, um, <laughs> who was a foreigner in the king's house, Moses, who was slow in speech, David, who was just a mere shepherd boy, even a prostitute named Rahab, who was asked to betray her own people in order to save her family and trust a God she barely knew. Time and time again, no matter who it is, they were all overwhelmed. And yet, God gave them sufficient grace to fulfill their unique purpose and calling. And I have to trust he does the same for you and me today. So I remembered last summer, our staff, we decided we wanted to go to, to a three-day conference in Houston. And in Houston, there's actually the NASA Space Museum, okay? So all you smart people out there are like, yes, she's going to talk about science. This is awesome. So yeah, so we walk in, and go ahead and put that picture up. We walk in this shed-looking building, and there before me is this massive shuttle, like bigger than this entire room. And it's all in formation, but in different compartments. And at the very top, you can see that brown cone. It's actually, that part's called the nose cone. And I want you, for, this for the sake of the story, to picture your life as this nose cone. And I started to read more about this nose cone. And actually, this is the only part of the whole entire shuttle that holds life. Like, that's crazy. That, was, that like, blew my mind. My eight-year-old self was like, no! Like, I thought they were doing backflips down the whole shuttle and then back, like living these gravity-free lives, but that's not what they do. They live in that little cone. Gosh! It hurt me! 
And then I started reading more. I was fascinated. I was like, what? And that this cone, the nose cone, it only see, it's the only part of the whole shuttle that sees the mission to completion. From the time it, it takes off to the time it lands, this is the only part that makes it back. And so then uh, engineers will go in, and they're going to calculate just how much propellant this shuttle needs to get up off the ground and to its mission. And then as it's going up and up and up, the different parts of the shuttle will fall off into the atmosphere or out into oblivion and engage a new part of the shuttle to kick on and take it to where it needs to be. And I can't help but imagine that this is how God's grace operates. That God is the master engineer, and he's going to go in, and he knows your mission. He knows your purpose. And he's going to calculate just how much grace you need to get you to where you, you need to go. That grace is your propellant that gets you up off the ground and to your dreams, to your calling. And if you know anything about engineers or scientists, they're, they're going to be very, very meticulous and, and conservative in their approach. They're not just going to give you just enough to get you there on empty. They're going to give you ample amounts of propellant so that if you have a failure, you can, you can rely on this extra amount. And God's grace, he's not gonna, just going to give you just enough. He's not going to give you, make your tank empty by the time you get to your mission. No, he's going to give you ample amounts of his grace so that when you have a failure, you say, I, I'm good. I have enough grace. Grace is all that I need. Or maybe when you get to your mission, you can be like, this is awesome. I'm living in my calling. I'm walking forth in my destiny. And I see far too many Christians and non-Christians alike kind of getting down and white-knuckling their way up to the top. That if I, can, if I can muster up enough human grit and perseverance and good vibes and happy thoughts, then I can, I can make my dreams. And you know where I always see this lead to? Burnout. Burnout in your family, with your friends, in your job. Burnout, especially when you have failure. Burnout with that dream you're pursuing. Burnout in ministry. And sometimes I can see God metaphorically looking at our independently ran space shuttles and see us reach new heights because I actually do believe that we all are created in the image of God and that we do have been, we have been given sound minds and ability to strategize and think. But he sees us reach this American dream or whatever dream it is for you. And he sees us on empty. That girlfriend, it, she wasn't hot enough. This house, it wasn't big enough. This car, it wasn't new enough. And God is looking at us and being like, oh my gosh, I have so much more for you. I don't want you to make it to your dreams on empty. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1:11. Because we know that this extraordinary day is just ahead, we pray for you all the time. Pray that our God will make you fit for what he's called you to be. Pray that he'll fill your good ideas and acts of faith with his own energy so that it all amounts to something. If your life honors the name of Jesus, he will honor you. Grace is behind you through all of this. 
There's always going to be more for you if you allow God's grace to fuel your calling. And Ben, you guys can come back up here. I've said all this to say, to lead me into the last point. And it's so near and dear to my heart. And I want you guys all to catch this before you leave. And it's this, that God, grace launches you into a lifelong pursuit of truth. So Paul starts to become older, and he starts taking on young guys, probably at the age of this room. And in the hopes that they can stand on his shoulders, they can stand on his work when he passes away, and that the gospel will continue to grow bolder and louder and wider. And so he starts writing these letters to these young leaders, one by the name of Titus. And he's already planted a few churches by this point, and he said this, Titus, or sorry, Titus 2, 12 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right. When you have experienced God's grace, it turns into a permanent bonding for an eagerness of truth. They are no longer separate entities in scripture. They're no longer grace and they're no longer truth. They are grace and truth. They are made one. Like a marriage, they, you cannot separate them. And I have this friend, her, her, she's actually on staff, she's an intern here. And she said that when you have tasted grace, you have tasted God. And your desire to sin turns into a, 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 what did she say? a longing for obedience. And I feel over the grace over the course of time have turned into these watered down messages that grace is like your get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is strong just enough to cover your failure or your sad attempt at righteousness. That you can go to the shelf of which you've stored grace, pull it out, get just enough you need to make yourself feel better, and then put it back until the next time you need it. And God is saying, no, grace is so much more than that. Grace is the pursuit of truth. Grace is becoming like Jesus. Judah Smith says grace is much more a person than a principle. And Jesus, whenever he came across a person in need of grace, whether that was a woman caught in adultery, or a man plagued with demons, or disciples that, that were suffering with doubt, he gave grace exorbitantly. So much so that these people turned immediately from desiring sin and yet Jesus always commissioned them into truth. He said things like this, like go and sin no more. Or go and tell how much God has done for you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is and forever will be the personification of grace and truth. This is good news. I remembered, this is my last story, I remember I was living out in England, and I was working for a campus charity, and a whole bunch of students loved going rock climbing. And so I decided I'm going to get really good at rock climbing and get in with these students. 
And so I start going to this bouldering gym. If you don't know what bouldering means, it's where you're climbing without ropes in, in the hopes that you develop technique. <laughs> and so I start going. I'm building my, building my strength. I'm, I'm building my technique. And the week before I left, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer a really challenging one. And so I see one. And there's all these really sparse handholds all the way up until the top, there's a ledge. And I start, I make my way up, I start going up, I get to this ledge and it's slippery. And so I, I'm not trusting it, I don't wanna put my weight on it. And so I, pull, I push my way up and I slip and I fall all the way down, come crashing down and it hurt. I was so embarrassed. And I look at my English friend and she's so cute and she goes, what? Are you gonna give it another go? And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm embarrassed, I failed, it hurt. I don't wanna try again. And she said, nope, you're gonna get back up there. And next time trust that that handhold has got you. You can put all of your weight on it. So I make my way up again, put my pride aside. And I get up to this ledge, I'm more tired this time. And I remember, I can trust this. I can trust this. I can put all my weight on this. So I do, I grab it with more authority. I put my weight on it, boom, grab the top with both hands. And this is how God's grace operates. That you will always land in his covering of grace. But grace is what picks you up and throws you back onto the wall of truth. And sometimes you're gonna effortlessly scale this wall of truth. But other times it's gonna feel like you are desperately clinging on to God's word. It doesn't make a whole bunch of sense that I need to radically love my horrible boss. But you know what, I'm gonna hold fast to this truth because God says that it's gonna take me to where I need to go. It doesn't make sense that I'm not, I'm not beautiful. I'm not worthy of God's love. But I'm going to hold fast to Psalm 139 that says, I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. It doesn't make sense that I need to abstain from sexual immorality. But you know what? I'm going to hold on to what God's word says about my life. I'm going to trust his promises. They are true. I'm going to put all of my weight on what God says about me. He's got me. He has got you. He's never failed anyone, and he's not going to start with you. So I have one last question for you, and it's this. Do you believe that God can transform your life by his grace daily? And so can everybody stand? I just want to close tonight triumphant and joyful because God's grace wants to meet us in this place. That God's grace is always going to compel us to go forward. That God's grace is going to fuel my calling. It's going to fuel your calling. And that grace by its powerful nature is going to subject you to a lifelong pursuit of truth. So with everybody's eyes closed, I believe in this room tonight, there's a few of you in here that have never accepted God's grace. And tonight is your night. You, you're in here and you're like, I want to accept Jesus. I want to make him the Lord and Savior of my life. If that's you in here, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand boldly and confidently. 
Everybody's eyes are closed. It's okay to say, I want that. I want to receive him. I want to receive a life worth living. I want to receive his calling. I want to receive his blessing. Go ahead and put your hand up really high. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. So Jesus, I just thank you so much for tonight. I thank you what you've done in this place. I thank you that people have accepted you. I thank you that people have crossed from death to life, that you are throwing a party for us right now in heaven. Jesus, I pray right now that you are downloading your Holy Spirit into these people, that you are, that you are giving them vision and courage. I pray that they walk out of these doors changed forever. And I pray for everybody else that's standing in this room that you saturate their life with so much grace. So much grace that Jesus, when people look at this room, that it starts revival. We want to see your kingdom here now. So Jesus, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.